I want to speak to you about being, um, about, I've entitled this preach, um, what have I entitled it? A sincere love for one another, um, or sincere kind of love. And I just want to unpack a scripture with you in 1 Peter 1, and this is a wonderful piece of portion of scripture, it's two verses, and I just want to unpack something with you of Peter speaking about being born again. And he uses this wonderful phrase that we use, you know, in the Christian life, if you've been saved, or as Jacaretus, and all right. That's what I said. I, we pastored a church in Otsorn. I was in Otsorn for six years by the grace of God. Um, and we, in 2004, we planted, and we were there, wonderful, wonderful six years. But then we handed the church over, Marit Vise Engelsekerk, in a very Afrikaans town, uh, very Afrikaans. Um, they use English in self-defense, um, and, but just the most wonderful, wonderful folk. My Afrikaans got really good in those six years. Unfortunately, we ended up moving back to Cape Town, and I lost it all. Uh, you know, that muscled. And then now in Wellington, no one, unfortunately, wants to speak Afrikaans to me. I don't know why. Everyone wants to speak English to me, so hence the English. So let's look at 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, and it says this. Peter's writing to these Christians that are um, having to shine their light and in many ways are being persecuted for their faith. These are believers who are following Jesus, and as they're following him, they're coming against resistance in their faith. Um, they actually are um, finding it quite difficult to be in a world that was no friend of, of grace, no friend of God, no friend of Jesus, because they were swimming upstream from the values of what they held to. And he's writing this book to them in 1 Peter and 2 Peter to encourage them in their faith. And the whole of 1 Peter, what he does is he speaks a lot about salvation. And he's trying to um, kind of lift up to them the, the importance of their salvation, that they mustn't lose the fact that they've been saved. Um, and you know, it's the most wonderful thing that we are saved, that we are um, are, are born into the kingdom of God. And he uses this kind of language here. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the abiding word of God. And I want to just look at this little phrase, born again, and then explain how how we love one another, how it comes out of that place, and how that ultimately is, is, is an example to people that aren't Christians, that this kind of love that is attractive to those that are outside of um, in a loveless world in many ways. And, you know, when I was, grew up, I grew up in a very traditional church. Um, I grew up in, a, uh, in, in the Catholic church where the term born again was a very scary concept. I was in a, in a high school where there were those Christians that were born again. And they were the weird ones. They were the ones that were swinging from the chandeliers, speaking in tongues, casting out demons. We were, and I, from a traditional background, I was like, ugh, those born again types, that's, that's cultish, that's weird. I never knew that the very Bible that I had, because we never spoke about the gospel, spoke about being born again. And, um, and after, when I was 17 years old, and I surrendered my life to Christ, and then I learned that I was born again, um, uh, and I became born again. I became inflamed with a passion for Jesus. I just wanted to serve Him and, and, and love Him in whatever I did. And I went to university at that time. 
Um, I studied at art school for the first three years, and in that environment, I remember there was someone in my class who was very open to the faith, very open to the idea of what Christianity was, and he was asking me questions about me being serving Christ and the person of Jesus, and he, um, and I said to him, well, you know, and I asked him the question, are you born again? And I remember him saying, well, I am a Christian, but I'm not a born-again Christian. As if there's two different types of Christians said, I'm not one of those born-again types. You know, like, I'm just a, I'm just a tradition. I'm, non, I'm a normal Christian. What he really meant was that he went to church on Sundays. That's actually what he meant. And he grew up in a Christian home. But he had no encounter with the living God. And, um, and you see this idea of being born again is you don't get two kinds of Christians where you get, like, a disciple and then a normal follower of Christ um, or a follower of Christ, you just get disciples. A disciple is one that follows Jesus with everything. There's no such thing as a, as a half-hearted Christian or, a, a, you know, we all, when you come into the kingdom, we're born again. And it's this idea of being born again. And I, I want to lay a very basic foundation and build on there because it's so important for us. That when it speaks about being born again, it's this idea of the gospel that, you know, Christianity is not from bad to good. You know, that now I was a bad person and, and, you know, there might be, maybe you're here tonight and you don't understand about the gospel. Maybe you're here, you've been invited. What is the gospel? The gospel is not, well, I was a bad person and I'm trying hard to please God. And then finally I become a good person. Praise God. Hallelujah. The gospel is that I was a dead person. I was dead. And now because of the work of God, because when I believed upon him, that he, when I put my faith in him, he made me alive. And so in that sense, I'm born again. I've been made new within me. He's taken out a heart of stone, and he's given me this, this soft heart to serve God and to, and to please him. And Peter speaks about this idea of, of, of that you've been born again by the incorruptible word of God. And he uses that kind of language. Look what he says here. He says, you've been born again, not by perishable seed, but of imperishable. And now, what does it mean when he says here, You've been born again through the living and the abiding Word of God. What does he mean by that? Because when we, when we normally read that, we think he's referring to the Bible, that he's referring to the Scriptures, but he's not referring to that. He's not referring to this book. He's referring to the message that is spoken out, the gospel. And while the Bible is the Word of God, and it is incorruptible, it is, it is perfect in every way, it's breathed out by the Holy Spirit, but the way people get saved is not simply by just reading the Bible, because I read the Bible plenty before I got saved, right? Many of you did. You read it at your bedside before you went to bed at night. You know, you read a scripture a day, you know, keeps the devil away, or, you, you know, you read your little scripture, or you read your, your, your Pharisee for Didach. You weren't born again, all right? Some of you are like, hallelujah, I remember those days. <laughs> but what he says here, what Peter's trying to say here, and, and how do we know, and I want to unpack this because it's important you understand this. He's speaking about the Word of God as something that is spoken, not something that is read. Look what he says here in verse 25. He says, but the Word of the Lord remains forever, and this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's not just speaking about the Scriptures. He's saying that, that you got saved when you heard the message through someone's lips. 
that someone spoke the gospel, this message that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Savior, and He comes to make us new. And why this is important, why I'm sharing this with you today is because for those of us that were at the gathering um, or have seen kind of the, the, the emphasis of late, definitely in Josh Jen, is that the Lord is putting His finger on evangelism, that He wants to teach us how to learn how to use our lips, not just our hands and our service to love people, but actually to learn how to use our lips, to know how to reach out to people with Christ. And um, the way we do that, friends, is, you know, we can give people Scripture to read. And people do get saved by reading the Bible. We know that. But actually, most people get saved when they hear the Word and they get it spoken to them, the living and abiding. And when that message, the message, the power of the gospel, when you learn how to share that, it can bring change into someone's life. And I know many of you got saved because of a friend that spoke to you, right? The truth. Or you came to church where you heard the truth preached out, and there's power in that. Um, I know when I was, um, especially a younger believer, you know, what we used to do is this friend of mine, um, we used to drive around Port Elizabeth where I grew up. I grew up in the same um, town as city as Conrad Murray Lane, we, and we were friends. We knew each other. But when I got saved, we used to drive around, a friend of mine, he used to have a little red car, and we used to get in his car, and we used to drive around to find hitchhikers so that we could witness to them. So we'd drive around, and because we were new Christians, we didn't know how to witness to people. We didn't know how to share the gospel, this this news that Jesus died for, for them, and he rose again to give them new life. We didn't understand any of that. And we didn't know, but we had these pieces of paper, these tracks. Um, in those days, do you, you know what a tract is? But it's like a little piece of paper that gives the gospel message on. And normally there's a kind of story, some kind of picture that hooks you in. You read it, oh, what's this? And then you, you turn there and it's the gospel, how to get saved. And, um, and we used to drive around and we'd pick these guys up and we'd put them in the back seat of the car. And I'd pull out a tract from the cubby hole and I'd turn around and say, Here's a tract. Do you know Jesus? And then we try and witness to them, give them the tract, and then we drop them off where they need to go. Some of you go, that's creepy, man. <laughs> but that's how we reach people. Another way we used to do it is we used to walk on the beachfront and just like, Lord, who do you want us to minister to? And we used to keep our tracks because we didn't know, and we used to hand this out. And the one night we went to, on the beachfront in a place called Happy Valley in PE, and we were handing out, and the one guy gave it to him, and I just sensed that this was a divine appointment from the Lord. And I gave him this tract as a new believer, and he looked at me, and he said, thank you very much, but I want to know from you how to get saved. You know, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I become a Christian? And I remember standing there feeling utterly unqualified, and actually I didn't know what to say to him. I think I mumbled something about, well, you must believe you got Believe in God, your God. You must believe in God, and you've got to give your heart to Him. Friends, that's not the gospel. That's part of the gospel. But I actually didn't know how to communicate, and I remember feeling very frustrated because I hadn't been equipped. And, you know, we've got resources. We've got, we're part of a church that can equip you. And I want to ask you, if someone comes to you and says, but how I want to hear from you this message, of this Word of God, the Word that is preached that can make me born again, That's what Peter's speaking about. It comes through our lips. And then obviously it comes because it's rooted in this word, which is the message 
that is written down and has become sure and true. And uh, I want to encourage you in that, you know. I know I think 5% of all Christians, um, only 5% have ever led someone to Christ. 5%. And that's probably a very uh, big estimate. It's probably a bit lower than that. And, oh, let's trust God that as we come to 2022, let's trust Him that there'd be many coming to faith just because you step out. You know, it doesn't mean you have to step out, and I'm sorry, I'm going down a rabbit trail now, but it doesn't mean you have to step out and you walk up to someone, you know, and go, do you know Jesus? Don't, don't do that. That's going to that's gonna, that's gonna freak people out. What I tend to do is if there's someone I don't know and I've, I feel the Lord prompting me, I'll, I'll go up and say them, to them something like this. You know, maybe we've connected over work or they're my neighbor and I'm building a relationship or there's someone at the tennis club or I'll, and I'll eventually say something like this. So how do you feel? about spiritual things, and I keep it very general. It's not threatening at all, and it's just a doorway in, just to see, is there an opening? Are there, in a sense, is there a heart that is open? And then they'd say, well, actually, this is what I believe. What do you believe? Ah, okay, let me tell you what I believe. And I tell you, friends, it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a hook in, sometimes in a very non-threatening way, to, to reach the gospel. Sometimes we've got very weird ways of doing evangelism. I know uh, Dudley Daniel used to share a story. Dudley was an apostolic leader. He was um, in New Covenant. It was a group of churches we used to work with. <coughs> and Dudley shared a story of an evangelist in Johannesburg. I'm, I'm, I'm totally rabbit trailing now, but I'm enjoying myself. Sorry. <laughs> I just want to drink some water. And um, this guy was an evangelist in Johannesburg, but he had very unusual evangelism techniques. What he used to do is he would stand in the alleyways in the CBD of Johannesburg, right in the center of town, and he'd stand in the alleyways in the shadows. And when people walked past, he would go, Sukisus! <laughs> then he'd hide in the, in the alleyways, and they'd go, Yeah, Lord. That's how I did it. Sukisus! <laughs> true story. It's a true story. And his way, friends, we, that is not the way that we are doing evangelism. While God in his mercy and God in his goodness can use that, of course he can. But there's a better way. Where in a sense, the only Bible that some people will ever read is you. The only message that they will ever read is your life. And, and so we get the privilege to embody the gospel where we are those who are born again through the message. We've heard the, the living word of God that has been preached to you, and we get it to preach it to others. Amen? And so then what he does is from that place, he gives us, and the whole Peter, he says, oh, your salvation, your salvation that you've been born again. And he, and he carries on about this thing about how you've been guarded with faith, and you've been kept for, for heaven and secured for heaven. And then what he does is he, he, he gives um, fruit or evidence to your salvation, to being born again. And, and the one is the thing that he says, and if we look here in, at the beginning of verse 22, he speaks about obedience. And he says that <clears throat> you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And so one of the ways it shows that we're born again is that we obey God. Amen? And that because we have a desire to please Him, that is a sign that you're a child of God. If you are born again and you don't hate your sin, if you don't hate your sin, then uh, is, 
Is that a sign that you're born again? No. Now, you might be, but there's no assurance of your salvation. You have a desire to the truth, to obey the truth. That's what it says here, to be purify your souls by your obedience to the truth. Then the second thing that he says, the second evidence, is he says, for sincere brotherly love. And then he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. And what I want to do is just unpack two things for you in this little phrase, sincere brotherly love, because that is the fruit of an individual that has been born again. And he says here, sincere, and so I want to look at this word or this phrase, brotherly love. What is brotherly love? And brotherly love is a term that's used in the Bible, in the New Testament, to describe a kind of love. I know, you know, in the Bible, if you've been saved for a long time, especially in charismatic churches, you would have heard all the Greek words for love. Can any of you tell me what they are? Agape, agapeo is actually the, the noun, the Greek noun, love, okay. Phileo, okay. Eros, which is kind of a sexual type of love, where we get our word erotic, the English word. Phileo speaks about a brotherly, or a kind of a love between one another. And agapeo speaks about a love from God. That's generally the way it's used. Now, it's not always like that, but it's generally used like that. But Paul, what he does here, he speaks about this brotherly love, and he uses the word phileo, Philadelphia. That's the word that gets used. And it's used in terms of, as the people that have the love of God, we now show love to one another. But it's not a kind of abstract love of like, you know, I love you in the Lord. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And it's a kind of, it's kind of a religious kind of love, you know, because it's brotherly love. Or this weird kind of cultish love where you now have to all live in a commune and share the same house. Or It's not that kind of love. It's a love of family. It's a love a real love where we love one another in a real practical way as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when the term brotherly love gets used in the Bible, a lot of the time it gets used in context of hospitality. And so if you read Romans 12, if, uh, verse 10, if you read Hebrews 13, then when it speaks about this Philadelphia, this, bro- this family love, this brotherly love, it says that show hospitality. And so the way that we love one another, friends, is we open up our homes, is we learn how to do that. And by doing that, it's actually a sign, it's a witness to the world of our love for each other. Um, It's part of our evangelism in many ways. So he carries on. He says it's a brotherly love. Then what he does is, and so I want to read something to you on this. You know, I think why does Peter makes such a big deal, like he really emphasizes love one another because he says here that you've called to love one another. Then he says it again. He says it, but love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And he's saying that there must be an earnestness. In other words, there's some kind of effort. There's some kind of zeal. There's some kind of action that's required from your side. Love one another earnestly. But why does he say that? He says it because he understands that sometimes it's difficult to love one another. That sometimes in the place that we are, it becomes challenging because we aren't always easy to love. And although we are born again, we still have our cracks and we still have our faults. And um, there's this old saying, and I want to read it to you, of, of the Tate family. And sometimes we all, I shared this in AM um, a few months ago, but you know, we all sometimes have the Tate family genes in us as Christians. What does that mean? 
or the flesh, and, and this is old joke, it says this, if you've been part of church life for any period of time, you understand the Tate family. There's old man dictate, he wants to run everything, while Uncle Rotate tries to change everything in church. There's Sister Agitate, who stirs up plenty of trouble with help from her husband, Irritate. <laughs> and I know this is extreme, but friends, in church life, this is often when you've been with the people of God for a lengthy period of time, you know, this ideal that we have of love one another, it becomes very real when we're dealing with conflict, doesn't it? When we realize there's something in us where we don't always get along. And that's why Paul says, earnestly love one another, cover over. Look what it says. It says, when new projects are suggested, hesitate, and his wife vegetate, want to wait until next year. Devastate provides the voice of doom, and potentate wants to be the big shot. But not all members of the, of the family are bad. Brother facilitate is quite good in church matters. Cousins cogitate and meditate, always think things over, and lend healthy, helpful, steady hands. And of course, there's the black sheep of the family, amputate, who has completely cut himself off from the church. And I think this is helpful because it understands, there's a sense, friends, that that's why we love one another. There's a brotherly love. And how do we do that? And the way we do it, the key with it, he actually gives this word here, sincere brotherly love. He uses this phrase. And I want us to look at what does it mean to have a brotherly love, a family kind of effect where we can really care for one another in a way that is sincere. That's what he says here. And essentially, and I want to share a story with you then as I close. And um, this word sincere, sometimes if you've got an English Bible, it can also be translated as the word genuine, something that's genuine. In other words, something that you know is true and right, and what you see is what you get. That's essentially what it means. Interesting, the Latin word for sincere means to be without wax. In other words, it means to be someone, and what happened was in the ancient times when these um, artists in Roman times, they would make sculptures, these beautiful marble sculptures. And when they made the sculptures and they would chip out the sculptures and chip it out into beautiful forms that it, it would be ready to be sold to various owners who had money. Um, sometimes the artists would make mistakes and there would be cracks in the marble, cracks in the artwork. And so what the artists used to do is they would deceptively take wax and they would cover over the crack with wax, white wax, and cover over the mistakes, and then sell the artwork to the owner, and the owner thought that they were getting this perfect piece of art, this perfect sculpture. And so what happened was, is that over time, is that as the wax started to disintegrate and either melt or, or, or disappear, suddenly the owner, over time, could see that actually this artwork wasn't perfect. And that the artist had lied to them. The artist had been two-faced. He, he had said to them, it's perfect and it's not. And they would see the crack. But that time, often the artist would have run away with their money. And, and so what the artist started to do is they would chip a little word at the bottom of their sculpture or underneath or wherever they do it. And the little word would go, sine, sire, without wax. In other words, that what you see is what you get. And so when I'm selling you this piece... 
I'm selling it to you, cracks and all. And so when the, the, the translators from the Greek wrote in Latin, wrote the Latin Bible, they used that word for genuine, or this, it actually means to not have a mask on, not to be two-faced. He says that when you love in church life, when you love with the kind of love that God wants you to love with, love in a way that is without wax. Love in a way that shows that you, in genuine, even showing your mistakes and showing your faults. And that if someone has cracks among you, someone has the, the, the family gene, the Tate family gene, we all do part of it, irritate, okay, frustrate. If you have that, then even though you have these cracks, is we learn how to love one another in spite of those things. And we cover over one another. And you say, you know, if I'm in this family, then you love me. You've got to learn to love me with my cracks and all. And sometimes, if we're honest, we sometimes struggle to be accountable. Or maybe we struggle to be vulnerable. Because sometimes you think, will I really be loved if they really know what I'm like? And I know that many of you have deep accountability and you love the value of being transparent and in the light. And, and I know many of you have opened your lives up. But maybe there are some of you here that, that if you're honest, there's, there's almost cracks in your life that you haven't allowed others to see the parts of you that maybe you know you're not yet like Christ. And part of being the family of God, of brotherly love, is the kind of love that says, here I am. Will you love me even though I'm like this or have this part of me that no one knows about and no one is aware Will you love me? You know, um, when I was leading in Edgemead, um, I led the Edgemead congregation for about six years. I took over from Will Murray, um, 2010. And we had an elder on our team in Edgemead, a godly man. I'm not going to say who he is because I don't want to, well, although it's public, I want to share his story with you. And this man had been on eldership with Will for many, many years um, he was an upstanding member of the church. He was a man of, he had godly kids, he had a godly wife. He just was a man that had done well in life. And, um, you know, everyone saw this man and saw like, man, this guy, he's, you know, you've got the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and this guy. It's almost like, he's, he's just a man of, of repu good reputation, of integrity, of honor. And um, when I was leading during that time, he was going through a very, very difficult time in his life where... He got sick. He developed a kind of illness that made him struggle with his emotions, struggle to kind of learn how to navigate his emotions in a way that when he was under stress, in a way that was just right and that he wouldn't lose his temper, but he struggled with that. He also lost his job. He had his own company, that uh, very large, successful company that folded um, over a period of six months. He lost a lot of money, and his wife was working. He was at home. And he was in a very dark place in his life, very frustrating place. Um, he was serving on eldership, but in many ways he wasn't doing that well. And he had parts that even the Lord was highlighting, things that were there all along, that were now under pressure, almost being revealed, parts of his character, parts of his life that the Lord wanted to put his finger on. And so as the stress was coming out, one night um, he was in his bed, uh, in his bedroom, with, um, and his wife was getting changed. They've got this bedroom where... Uh, the kind of clothes cupboard is just around the corner as part of the bedroom. And um, they were arguing. They were actually having a, an argument, a, a fight. But not, not a, they were just having a, an, and he was frustrated. 
because she had eaten his chocolates on the side of the bed. Yeah, I know. It's like the craziest things, right? And so, and for those like, right, but that happens, right? I mean, that's, the little things build up and they become, and for some reason, it just was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the final thing that had made him just, oh, I've just, I'm over my, I've just, and so he was drinking a glass of water. He had water, a water in his hand, a glass of water, and completely out of character. He, this isn't one, but he took the glass, and out of frustration, he threw it against the wall. Out of utter frustration, he just was overwhelmed. God, where are you? I feel like you haven't answered my prayers. I've been trusting you. And now my wife's eating the chocolate on the side of the bed. You know? It was almost just the silliest thing that just kind of, for some reason, and they were arguing, and he just he had lost hope. And he just took the glass and he threw it against the wall, completely out of character. Never done anything like that before. And a shard of glass, as it broke off the wall, we're not sure how it happened, because even the way it happened seemed to be, I believe it was actually the Lord, and I'll tell you why. Almost kind of ricocheted round and, 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 and cut her on the nose as she was, as she was getting changed. Just cut her on the nose, and, and, and so she had a little gash of blood that started just pouring down her nose as she was cut. And her son, their son, who was about 22 at that point, came into the room, saw his mom crying, you know, got blood on her face. He saw, he saw his dad that was on the floor just weeping, just like he had messed up, and what he had done, and Lord, I've disqualified myself. And, and in that, you know, he shouted at his dad, Dad, what's happened? What have you done? And he took his mom and took her to hospital, and she had a couple of stitches, and, and she had a, um, <laughs> had a couple of stitches and, and, and covered her nose. And, um, and he phoned me immediately. I got this call straight after it happened, weeping. Uh, Mike, I've just messed up, man. And he's an older man in the Lord. He's not like a, and I know he's a man of integrity. I've messed up. I, this is what happened. You know, I'm disqualified. I've sinned again. And I was like, whoa, 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 okay, just calm down, you know. What, you know so we calmed him down. We didn't actually step him off eldership because it wasn't, it wasn't a habitual sin. It was a one-off. But what we felt to do is we felt, you know, because he came to church. Obviously, his wife came to church now. And she had this little, this little plaster and a bit of a bruise. And it's like, hey, what's happened, man? You know, and guys are, especially men in church with guys, you know, there's a bit of banter. Hey, Brew, what, what did you do, man? And, it's, and, and then, of course, he's feeling shame. He's feeling like, oh, if people really knew what happened, and he's trying to hold it together, and it's in a very difficult time. So as, as elders and as I sit, da- sit down with him to process with him, we said to him, you've got to actually, you know what would be the best thing? Share with the whole church what happened. Because you're an elder in a public office and you carry up a profile, you need to probably share with the church. Tell them what happened. And he's like, I can't. This is so embarrassing. Like, I've got, almost I've got years of a, of a reputation in the Lord, of a man of God, and at night you want me to do this. I said, well, pr- consider it. Ask God for courage. I'll give you time. And a week went past, and I said, can you do it? No, I can't, I can't. The next week, can you do it? I, I can't. I just can't. I can't, I can't bring myself. I'm going to reveal my cracks. Will the church accept me? How, you know, it's, I'm going to lose face. Third week, are you ready? Can you do this? And he says, okay, yes, I can do it. I want to stand up. I want to, I want to share. And so he came up with his wife. His wife, just an amazing woman, because she had forgave him. She knew it was out of character. She came up next to him, and he just began to explain to the church 
how he had done this and how he had lost his temper. And he, as, he, as he shared, he just did it in weeping and tears and just a broken, broken man. And just saying, man, it's just the, I feel like I'm at the end of myself. And as he shared that, you know what the church did? Everyone stood up. And the whole 250 people, it was a big congregation, just ran to the front, gathered him, loved him, prayed for him, encouraged him, and in some ways celebrated the fact that he was willing to be vulnerable. And he was willing to share a part of his life that was very, very difficult. And you know, sometimes, and I love that story because the Lord had orchestrated it in some ways to do something in him but also to do something in the church. And friends, I want to say that we should never be scared of being that kind of sincere, that kind of vulnerable. Because when we are, there's something of the glory of God that comes. Because it enables the glory of God to come and cover over our sins. And it's a picture of the nature of God. That when you and I deserve judgment, we deserve God to point His finger at us to say, you deserve judgment. You deserve hell. But because we've been loved by God, and we understand that God doesn't do that, he pointed his finger at his son and said, my son, you are going to take hell for them. You're going, to, you're going to take their sins upon you. You're going to be the substitute. And as we know that kind of love, it's like we are able to love others because we have been loved, right? You have been covered. God does not point his finger at you. He loves you, and He covers you with grace. And I want to say in the same way, friends, that would we be that kind of church? Would we be the kind of church that loves one another like that? That when there's someone that's struggling, we're not going to beat them down. We're going to say, come on, we're going to gather around you. We love you in spite of your mistakes. There's a lot of us here that are maybe very difficult to love. And you know, ugh, we're going to love you anyway. I'm difficult to love. You love me. How much more shouldn't we love one another? And from that place, friends, this is evangelism 101. Why do I say that? Because John 13 says, For this is how the world may know that you are my disciples, by the way that you love one another. And so if you love one another like this, with a sincere brotherly love, earnestly from the heart, from a pure heart, now that you're born again, because you're the children of God, how much more shouldn't we? And the world will look at you. Wellington will look at you. People look at you and say, but there's something different about them. And they're drawn in to the life of God because they see the gospel lived out in the flesh. They see the way you are at work. They see the way you are at, at university. They see the way you are, wherever you are. And if we cover, that's the gospel lived out. It's the most beautiful thing. It's the most attractive thing. And so I want to pray for us tonight. Pray that the Lord would help us to, to get back to these basics in the faith. You know, and even as we've had the privilege to welcome new members into the congregation, oh, what a, what a joy to be the family of God, that God is our Father and the church is our mother. As St. Augustine once said, friends, we need one another because this is the gospel lived out.